You're listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet Podcast, presented by Pinelands Nursery. Here are your hosts, Fran Chismar and Tom Knezic. Prepare to be inspired. Uh, welcome back to Native Plants Healthy Planet, presented by Pinelands Nursery. I am Fran Chismar. And I'm Tom Knezic. Uh I've been excited really about all our guests, but uh, this one in, in particular I've been looking forward to. Uh, I think all of you, especially you, Fran, I think you're going to like this one. I do too. Uh, I yeah, do too. Yeah. So <laughs> speaking of likes, we appreciate everyone's support that we've gotten back so far. I know we, we've been talking about it a lot, but we're really overwhelmed with all the, the support and feedback we've been getting. So uh, just... Speaking of likes, make sure that you like and, and follow, comment, give us a review, uh, and share this podcast, our, our Native Plant Healthy Planet podcast, uh, with, with everybody you know. Um, in fact, do it right now. You know what? I, go hit pause. When I say go, you hit pause, and then we'll be right here when you come back. So ready, set, pause. And we're back. So <laughs> thank you for leaving that five-star review. We, we appreciate it. So uh, we really can't express how much we appreciate it. And this episode, particularly that that we're doing today, is a reminder to me how little I know about the industry as a whole. Like you, you, you tend to get in your little niche, and you think you know something, and then you realize there's a whole universe outside of this planet you don't know mm-hmm. as much as as you think. I've never claimed to be an, an expert, but I I claim to know a lot. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so I'm not really the, today's topic. I'm not really well-versed in so a i I don't want to make a fool of myself which which i have a tendency to do uh but b i'm excited to learn about this from someone who's an expert so Mm -hmm. you couldn't ask for a better person to have for this topic so the the whole point of this podcast to me has been to bring in people that are smarter than us and and we've definitely managed to do that on 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 every episode so i think i think that's why this this whole podcast has inspired Mm -hmm. me in so many ways yeah and it's been inspiring to me as well and uh, i think a lot of our listeners uh have been inspired by this at least from the feedback we're getting um thank you to cotton clem and and nicole c underscore b for your recent reviews uh we really appreciate that I've mentioned before, feedback is so important to us, and it's nice to hear about your experience and, and that it's been a positive one. Um, and we just want more of that feedback as we, we get more guests, and uh, and uh, we want you to introduce other people to the podcast as well. I mean, the, the, the guests have been inspiring. The listeners have been inspiring. Uh, it's even really it's, – it's gotten to the point where it's changed my every day. So I've, I've started birding uh, just from ha- a mm-hmm. lot of our guests being birders. Um, I've already I've I've been obsessed with pollinator habitat. As, but as have I. Yeah, I mean that's but it's 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 going to like an obsession level, um, and now I have the planting bug. Now that it's spring, I want to get out and plant. Uh, you know, because I actually because of everything being shut down, I actually have a chance to enjoy spring for a change. Uh, typically, spring is our craziest season, but I'm actually getting a chance to enjoy it. But I'm kind of bummed because I'm getting ready to move, so I don't mm-hmm. want to start any projects at my house. So I've actually started planting native native gardens at my fiance's house and i i she is aware of it i <laughs> I, I did tell her you know i'm gonna go off topic for one sec so i a few places of employment ago probably going over 20 years ago i i worked with a gentleman who was obsessed with habitat so he mm-hmm. lived in wilmington delaware in row homes where it was nothing but grass no one had trees mm-hmm. 
And when you would come down a street, you would see turf, 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 woods. And he had <laughs> his front yard and backyard completely wooded in this strip of row homes. And the amount of birds that he had uh, and pollinators in his yard was amazing. Yeah. It, oh, it yeah. was – I mean – they they came so but he ran out of room so what he would do was buy plants and leave work early and he started planting things in his neighbor's yards before they got (laughs) home from work and they would get home and go rob did did you plant this tree in my backyard he'd be like yeah i did so he he was just trying to do the whole the whole street regardless of what his neighbors wanted he went rogue he (laughs) did go he did go rogue so i i promise not to do that to my fiance at her at her property but she has um she she has great wooded habitat in her Mm. backyard but she really doesn't have um a shrub layer so i need to Mm -hmm. add a shrub layer so uh, I was definitely thinking winterberry holly for winter food source, summer sweet for hummingbirds, uh, elderberry not only for pollinators mm-hmm. but for us we wanted yeah. the berries. So I'm kind of curious if if you have any recommendations for me. I'm asking for help. Yeah, well, what do you think? Also, well, maybe for you guys, but but definitely for the birds is uh, high bush blueberry. There's actually and, a, a not where we're thinking about it, but she already has them. Oh, really? Now okay. my my fiance is from Poland, mm-hmm. and there is something with. With people from Poland and blueberries, they love their blueberries. So there's already blueberries there, Mm -hmm. but not where we're thinking. We need to put some in. That's a great idea. Thank you. Just from the fall color. So it's appealing to to people, too. You have to fight the birds for the berries, but that's if you're trying to bring in birds, that's a great choice. That's a great choice. And then uh, a lot of the viburnums, um, cranberry viburnum in particular. I didn't even think about that. I guess some of them get a little bit big, but uh, some good options for you. So. All right. Awesome. Thank you. I appreciate the feedback. Thank you so much. But yeah, uh, moving on to today's guest. Um, I actually, I met him back, uh, I guess it was last summer. We were both speaking at Millersville and, and um, I realized during the keynote uh, session, I was standing with my back against the wall and, and uh, he just happened to be sitting next to me and working on his laptop. And I glanced over and not, no, I wasn't trying to be be a snoop or anything, but he's working on this really cool picture of, of a native bee and just touching up and editing all the, the pictures. And then, like, I kept glancing over and glancing over. And next thing I know, it's been like 10 or 15 minutes, and I haven't been paying attention to this keynote speaker at all. I don't even remember who it is, who was the speaker. Because I've just been watching all the little intricacies and looking at the little the different parts of the eye of this bee and all the little hairs and watching this guy work on, on this picture. And it was it was a stunning picture already and then he, with the touch-ups and everything it was absolutely incredible wow so when we started to go into uh the, the social distancing episodes of of our podcast where we're uh, having people call in and trying to give our, our listeners stuff that they can work on at home um even if they're just staying inside it's something you can look at online or learn or, or help you garden this was one of the people that i i originally thought of so so sam why don't you uh you take a second to introduce yourself Sure. Uh, this is Sam Drogi. I work for actually the federal government. I work for the U.S. Geological Survey, and my specialty has been in a very broad way um, figuring out the status and trends of of plants and animals. Um, so over the years, I've worked on everything from uh, tardigrades to birds. That was a big part of my career. Amphibians, uh, dragonflies, butterflies, and um, for the last twenty years or so, um, I've been spending more and more time on uh, native bees uh, with the idea of looking at 
um, how to how to determine how well they're doing, so their status, and maybe starting a monitoring program, which turned out to be more difficult than I thought. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, in the meantime, um, it's a longer story, but I became very, very familiar with um, the species themselves. Um, we've created a whole set of identification guides, sadly pretty technical ones, not your, um, although we do have a uh, Bees of Maryland mm-hmm. um, which is meant to be used with a pair of binoculars for people interested in um, watching bees, uh, watching the native species okay. as well as honeybees, and learning a little bit there. Um, but that's that's sort of the broad scope. Uh, I now spend most of my time working on native bee issues, and it's taken me into um, their conservation. And I've moved now back onto our uh, research refuge and have a 30-acre compound um, that we are uh, clawing back from invasive species, something mm-hmm. you guys have to deal with all oh, the time yeah. too. Yeah, and um, and then replanting uh, it with um, uh, natives. It's a great opportunity in a way because um, it is. It's not a pretty piece of property in in some ways, and it's full of things already living there. So we're not taking right. a plowed or a a farm field and restoring it. We're taking a field filled with um, all kinds of aggressive weeds mm-hmm. okay. and um, seeing what we can do to flip it to be more native, less invasive, and working with um, some of the more aggressive um, native species. And also, I'm sure we'll talk about this some, um, uh, building in a component of some of the um, uh, plants, the native plants that have bees that. Um, what we would call specialist bees that mm-hmm. only go to a small subset of all the plants. So that's that's in a in a very broad way um, where I'm coming from right now. And and, and to me, that the idea of a 30 acre compound to me actually sounds pretty fantastic. But starting with with an area overrun with invasives uh, to me is is a much more difficult difficult on taking than starting with a clean slate like it's clean slate you you get to start from scratch but invasives are are an issue <laughs> that especially if you're dealing with a wooded area that that's not going to be easy because you're trying to preserve some things and, mm-hmm. and and deal with other invasives so I, I i can imagine that's quite the on taking in itself yeah yeah it's uh, and i and actually i'm thankful for that the inside the 30 acre compound we have no deer Outside, we oh, have the mm-hmm. addition of a lot of deer also. So it's actually a, a perfect place to um, do a reality check on yeah. um, working with um, corrupted landscapes, let's call that, and trying to um, um, bring them back. And, you know, we're doing different things, and we'll we'll do more as we go along. Everything from the, the type of uh, what you see mostly out there, um, on YouTube, which is uh, burning everything off with herbicides, to uh, which isn't our preference, yeah. to uh, more uh, selective plowing, um, to simply mowing and then um, using a brush blade on a um, on a string trimmer um, to uh, edit. I would call mm-hmm. it out the plants that um, we prefer not to be there. Um, to combinations that involve heavy chip mulches. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. It'll be ongoing yeah. experiment, and I'm actually pretty excited by uh, it. Yeah. I'm, I'm assuming there will be pictures based on. <laughs> so I'm looking forward. Yeah, I'm looking yeah, we, forward to this as well. Yeah, and people can follow us on our Facebook page for the laboratory, and and that's where we post these um, kinds of events. Fantastic. Uh, just and, to give you an example of how um, 
long this has been in invasive territory. Um, yesterday, I cut down a um, a bush honeysuckle that um, the it had a multi-branched trunk, but um, some of the uh, the individual branches were 12 inches across, and the oh, whole base wow. was probably 30 inches, and oh. it was <laughs> un- it was a t- it was it was a tree. I, I don't um, know so, if I've ever seen yeah. that that yeah. large before. I, that's that's crazy. I think they planted it over 50 years ago when that was um, a wildlife uh, forage yeah. food <laughs> yeah. um, that they were promoting. So I I have a, I'm already going off topic and already going with a question that's not even one that we had written down. So one of the things that that struck me as you were going through your your bio a little bit and telling us about you was for for us when we're dealing with people in the environmental field, you you see their specialty pretty pretty narrowed down like we we talk to people that just specialize in in turtles or things like that, but you've worked with a lot of different categories, which is impressive. Is there one that you prefer over the other? Is there one area that like you like dealing with bees more or birds more? Is there one area that you're drawn to? Um, I've, you know, in a lot of ways, the answer would be no. I got into bee, native bees because there was a need, I thought, to look at the status of pollinators because it's they're, they're so obviously integrated into both agricultural systems and to our natural community. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of talk about declines, but no data. So that's, that fits our ticket. I didn't know anything um, about um, other than, you know, cursory kinds of information, having okay. temp- taken several entomology courses. Um, and so, and then over time, I became uh, more and more of an expert because I needed to. And then, um, but I fall in love with all these different groups that I've studied um, this one really resonates with me, and um, um, you know, it's it's sort of I've I've in a way painted myself into a beautiful little corner because I haven't been able, as I've been able in the past, to replace myself. Okay, I've worked on a certain level of you know the boring statistical and other design things. Now I'm going to move to a new topic and look at how to you know work on the status of salamanders or whatever it might mm-hmm. be. Yeah. Um, so with this one, um, the identification issues have become um, the sort of paramount. Um, it's uh, surprisingly, I think, for most people to hear is it's not a picture book thing. It's um, extremely difficult. Even the experts um, uh, argue over details. You pretty much, even with bumblebees, need a little dead body of a bee to look under the microscope to determine um, you know, safely to species. And even then there's, um, groups of, uh, bees, you know, there's, there's 4,000 in North America, about 10% don't even have a described name that goes with them. So, um, and part of that is just few people. It's not a something you can do like with butterflies where you catch them and uh, you have advanced amateurs working on it. Um, and a lot of the, the details are ex- microscopic and subtle. So I have, you know, uh, a long time ago we decided that we needed to um, uh, create a set of identification guides for people in the field because there weren't any. And um, and in that process became, um, you know, more and more familiar with the species and did more and more work for people on identifying the species that they had um, captured as part of a study or uh, survey themselves. So I enjoy that. Um, That's... um, uh, right in my lane right now, and uh, there are people who are 
um, working at very high levels, but really um, don't feel like I can leave the field at this point. Mm-hmm. Did, did you expect um, so, it to be that vast? Like, did you know it was going to be as big of an on-taking as it's turned out to be? No, you know, I assumed when I started that, okay, I don't know how to um, identify or know much about the details, but I do know how to, you know, set up survey programs and what you look for in terms of bias and variance estimates and then, you know, do all these calculations and explore different kinds of techniques and evaluate them for the best way to track changes. And I figured that we would hire someone to do the identifications of the bees. Well, it just turned out that um, we couldn't find anybody. And when we did find someone, they spent almost all their time trying to figure it out down at the Natural History Collection. Okay. And I was like, all right, this is a problem. Like, it's, they're relatively easy to catch using what we would call bowl or colored traps. Um, but um, you can't really advocate for people to do surveys and uh, give them all the techniques to capture and curate um, a collection of bees. And then they're like, okay, well, what are they? That's, you know, um, not the end game. So that's how we got into the ID stuff. Um, and then it turns out that um, I had to get more and more involved because there just really literally were not people available to create these guides. Even back in the day when we actually had money, um, it, it became like, okay, I'm just going to have to do this myself. And I enjoy it. So I, mm-hmm. I really can't complain. Yeah. And in the in the process of lots of collecting. I collect everywhere I go and when I'm looking at bees and lots of collaborative stuff, uh, stuff um, opportunities pretty much with every state and many of the uh, provinces in several foreign countries. I've really been able to um, use all that experience and um, collaborative work to get an understanding of um, how uh, native bees are working the system and their distributions abundance, um, what plants they're using, and life histories, and um, yeah, it's uh, endlessly fascinating. You don't need to go to Madagascar to find new species <laughs> mm-hmm. and to um, have all sorts of uh, life history discoveries. Oh, that, that spe- Although, if you want to, if you want to send me to Madagascar, I'm- <laughs> <laughs> we'll work on that. Yeah. You know, it's to me, it 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 speaks for the vastness of it when you have a, a an arm of science that is so vast that you have very varying opinions uh mm-hmm. or or ways of looking at it like like you would you, you think of you know quantum physicists arguing over different theories but when when you're looking at just something what i think a lot of people would think of as bees as being narrow being so vast that there's that much that much to learn mm-hmm. still is is pretty yeah. amazing to me i wouldn't have so guessed that myself about- yeah, so when you think about that, you know most people have a, a awareness of honeybees. Culturally, mm-hmm. it is the bee, and we have um, integrated that into our societies um, for years, um, uh, even when we brought them over from uh, Europe. So it's not none of the honeybees are native to North America, and um, we brought them over um, and uh, uh, we use them. They are in hives. We can look at them. Um, they're in our literature, they're in our poetry, in songs, um, in cartoons, all these kinds of places. And uh, a lot of people have a relatively high understanding of how honeybees work. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, think about the fact that we have about 4,000 native species of bees in North America. And then think also of the fact that each of those is equally as complex 
and um, different from honeybees as each other. And all of a sudden, you know, you you expand upon that point that you made, which is that we have very little understanding of the diversity of what's going on um, with our native species of bees because we've been um, so concentrated on the sort of uh, one-trick pony of honeybees mm-hmm. in the system because the native bees don't give us honey um, and they don't have the same kind of – they don't have any of the life history of, of honeybees, mm-hmm. so we rarely see them. Most of them don't ever sting us. Um, they're in, in, uh, integrated into our lawns and yards and agriculture and uh, flowers um, and certainly all the wildflowers um, without any effort on our part. Um, so it's easy enough to just um, not bother looking at them. But in a, in a way, you can also reflect on this by thinking about wildflowers, which we do know a lot. Mm-hmm. And we have many, many field guides. There's many, many floras. Until recently, there was only about 10 faunas for bees, but there's, I think, 2,000-plus floras of, uh, within North wow. America. Just think of that diversity of floral types of all those different kinds of colors, sizes, shapes, when they bloom, um, and the complexity of just the flowering parts, and realize that there is a hidden universe of bees, mostly. Sometimes it's not bees, but almost always it's bees. <laughs> that is um, controlling, working with the plants to create that system in plants. So you can thank bees for all these flowers because without bees being there, plants obviously have no real reason to mm-hmm. uh, expend all this um, time, money, and um, effort into things like nectar and pollen that's um, you know covered with all kinds of lipids and proteins and certainly has no real reason to do all this kind of fancy schmancy floral display, which is, you know, the entry point for um, gardeners and botanists to large um, extent. So, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's so um, vastly underrated that that's one of my um, delights is to kind of let people in on that little secret mm-hmm. that there's a lot going on out there. And, and yeah. one of the things that we discuss all the time, too, is that there's always other factors out there working against these things, too. Like, we just got something in the, the mail the other day from, from a nursery. What was it? The, the Oh. A new take on natives. <laughs> a new take on natives. A new yeah. take on natives, um, which are, are clones, and, and they're always trying to make everything bigger and better and brighter but that's right. not necessarily the best and look thing. different so you, you're the only one in the, on the block who has it and which isn't yeah. necessarily yeah. the best for the pollinators so it's no. you know it's they, they think they're they're doing something great and it's a marketing ploy and that, mm-hmm. you know I, listen i i understand there's a difference between uh native horticulture and ornamental horticulture you, you just to me that there's a separation though between the two and there's a mm-hmm. there's a purpose for each so it's if you're really doing the right thing for pollinators you need to do the right thing for yeah pollinators. so yeah. that that's a that's an important point so when you have um i have to begin thinking about well how do i help native pollinators really the the avenue to do that is by providing them their food which is always going to be plants and always going to be a flowering plant um, when you're dealing with um, um, cultivars of native plants, then all of a sudden what you have is a system that has become unhinged from natural selection mm-hmm. and has moved into man-made selection. And, and so that's a good word, factors, is unhinged. Yeah, <laughs> that's yeah, a great so descriptor for All it. those factors, 
that you guys just mentioned, such as bigger bloom, longer bloom time, shorter stature, and you know, um, different you colors, know, the doubling you know. of parts from mm-hmm. sepals, and all that leads to um, you know that that um, that energy um, has to come from somewhere, and because no one is selecting for pollen and nectar anymore because it's a man-made system, then a lot of times what happens is a lot of the pollen and nectar gets dialed out because it's mm-hmm. all vegetative propagation at that point. Yeah. And um, so you, in a very general way, not always, but in a very general way, uh, the more derived, the more it's a cultivar's cultivar, mm-hmm. particularly if you double stuff, the less interest, even though it's a native, um, that the bees have in that particular plant. Now, Sometimes these cultivars are really um, a found object. In other mm-hmm. words, you can um, look at uh, some of the great stuff that um, uh, Mount Cuba has mm-hmm. done. They yep. certainly yeah. are worthy of your show. And they mm-hmm. look at a, a lot of these different varietals and do evaluations, and they have a sort of a, a quick bee evaluation, too. And um, so sometimes they find, oh, my gosh, look at this one as off the charts in terms of bee use. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot going on there, but part of that is that it may not be a derived one. It's just like, oh, we found this really interesting sport in this of this flock species, let's see, or this hydrangea in somewhere out there, and now we are propagating it. And um, mm-hmm. so th- this is a, a long-winded way of saying <laughs> no. that better to use the um, you know the root stock from a native plant society if you're interested in if your focus is on bees mm-hmm. and be more questioned uh, question the uh, the fluorescent colors of cone flowers for example yeah. Yeah. and and i'm glad you brought up mount cuba because and sometime at some point they're coming on they've agreed to come on we're just in the the process of figuring out when and we also uh with pylons nursery we're producing a lot of wildflower seed and uh they actually came up for a tour and um uh, Sam Hoadley, who's their their trial garden manager, actually is going to come back up this summer. Granted, <laughs> we'll if see. Can, we'll see if, if we're yeah. we're still social distancing or not. But he's going to come back up this summer to walk through these uh, wildflower fields that we've created because really you have six to twelve thousand or, or even more plants of all the same helenium or all the same uh, monarda that are all right next to each other, and you see all these subtle differences. It's it's really evident in the Echinacea purpurea field that we have where the cones are different shapes and the flower petals from just from stem to stem are completely different shades of yeah. pink. And I, mm. I really appreciate the work that Mount Cooper does. Just, you know, Dr. Dick Lady, who was involved mm. early on, um, you know, because he had a love for natives and the cultivars. Yeah. I, his property had a stream going through the middle that one side was all cultivars and one side was all natives. Mm-hmm. Like, and I, you know, he introduced Purple Dome Master and mm-hmm. things like that, but... You know, he kind of had a love for both, so I kind of like yeah. he liked seeing the interaction between the two, which I kind of appreciate. And he he did a lot of work with Mount Cooper mm-hmm. at the beginning, but yeah. yeah. And just to show you the value of Mount Cuba beyond uh, its horticultural value, is um, a, a friend of mine, Matt Sarver. Mm-hmm. Um, he friend of ours Mount too. Cuba to do. <laughs> Pardon? I said he's a friend of ours too. <laughs> oh, okay, yeah. And so he ha- um, did a survey of the uh, bees of Mount Cuba. And he specifically targeted the uh, plants that had specialist bees on them. 
And in doing so, he got a whole series of bees that had never been found in Delaware before, oh. including at least one that um, on uh, Jacob's Ladder that um, had not been, that even the nearby states had not recorded it. Wow. Oh, so wow. Um, it just shows you um, that, um, you know, you build it and they will come. Um, uh, some of this is uh, also the fact that if you, if you look, you will find them yeah. <laughs> because obviously they're not flying in from two states away, mm-hmm. but they yeah. uh, ha- have lived in the area at a low level. And um, uh, it was only until you had a big mass of, of some of these plants and someone looked that you found it out. But it just, it, it just shows that um, you can, property owners can make a difference. And even small property owners, because bees are small, right? Mm-hmm. We're not releasing bison into your quarter acre lot. But um, by planting these plants, you will invite in almost any of these bee species, and you can have um, quite a significant impact, um, just like that person did in that um, your uh, development that you lived in. Um, mm-hmm. One plant. So a rough a rough way to think about this is uh, for every five flowers, that's enough pollen and nectar to support one baby bee. Let's call it. Okay. So. Um, if you do the multiplication, then, you know, a clump of, um, you know, a simple cup of black-eyed Susans is um, is a gift, um, yeah. mm-hmm. particularly yeah. if you're taking it away from lawn. Yeah, yeah. Is, is there enough historical data for, you know, because on the last podcast that we did with, with Marcus Gray from Audubon International, we just talked about the loss of habitat, and that seems to be a theme across almost every episode. Um you know, especially in the Northeast and the Mid-Atlantic. Um, right. Like, and you mentioned there's 4,000 native species. Do you know, like, is that a decline? Is that, are there ones that have been extinct or have come distinct, extinct over the last 20, 30, 40 years uh, due to yeah. loss of habitat? I just didn't know if there was enough data or if or a lot of the data is, is relatively new. Well, I can tell you um, in a very simplistic way that when you build a road, that the land that used to have all kinds of native plants and animals and mm-hmm. uh, bees and everything on it has zero. Mm-hmm. So you can just do the calculations of how much of our landscape in New England or wherever state you want has been zeroed out by houses, factories, um, row crops, um, and there's a long list. And then there's a shorter list of things that have been um, modified in a way that really decreases their value. Um, and depending on how you play it, it could be roadside verges, could be a positive, or it could be a total negative. Lawns certainly are primarily a negative. Um, and on down to this list to even moving into how are our remaining natural areas um, managed, uh, are they emphasizing just planting a bunch of trees, all one species, or are we looking for the biodiversity of native plants? So. Uh, the um, tracking of bees is really going to be more efficiently done by tracking the biodiversity of native plant communities. Okay. If those are are um, healthy and being curated well by um, uh, you know by citizens and people and managers in states and counties, then we're probably going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, backing up one step further to my specialty, which is tracking changes. I can tell you that we don't track them, right? We have no idea about the status of these bees other than we probably can still find, um, you know, we've looked, 
uh, find almost all the species. Okay. Um, the only group that has um, a known problem that's separate from loss of habitat is bumblebees. Okay. And hmm. that has to do with the introduction, as is so often the case, of an inadvertent introduction of diseases of bumblebees from Europe into hmm. the United States because of um, the trade now in bumblebees for greenhouse production of uh, oh, wow. tomatoes and sometimes other species. So because of that, we had a set of uh, pathogens. Um, some are diseases, some are um, other crazy organisms that whack uh, bees. And um, we've lost, almost certainly lost one species, and another is on the edge. Several others are so uncommon that we're not even sure what edge they're on. Okay. And then uh, another series um, seems to have declined, and then... Um, there's other other birds, or not birds. I'm looking at a uh, kestrel outside my window. Um, <laughs> uh, other bees are, uh, other bumblebees are in trouble, um, and uh, so that's that's separate though from the habitat. You know, yeah. together mm -hmm. it's a, a little two-fisted punch to the bumblebee crowd. Yeah, I can imagine. It's you know, it's like like anything native or, or natural to here. Like we see it with with trees and shrubs, just with any any introduction, even if it's by mistake, you know, emerald, uh, emerald ash borer or Asian longhorn beetle or uh, the uh, lanternfly, which is which is huge now. So mm -hmm. it's, right. um, you know, it doesn't take much if to get that invasive, uh, invasive, whatever pathogen or, or insect mm -hmm. or whatever yeah. it is, just yeah. to you, you know, if you think of the ash forests in in Michigan that are just completely devastated or. Mm -hmm. Or bacterial leaf scorch here in New Jersey with oaks. It's we're we're seeing a decline in oaks that that's changing, you know, weekly. Uh, just with even the amount of acorns they produce, mm -hmm. um, and it's yeah. it's it's hard to save all those things when there's so many outside, so much outside influence. I should say. Yeah. 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 Go back to the uh, loss of chestnuts, um, mm -hmm. and uh, that uh, significantly changed the composition of eastern forests. But there were a whole series of animal groups. Including bees, it's a uh, chestnut and it's um, it's uh, cousin uh, uh, chinkapin are in um, a genus that you don't think of them as uh, big pollen producing groups or having bees, but um, uh, they they produced tons of pollen and nectar during a season because they bloom like in June um, when almost everything is shut down. So. Um, yeah, and so that shifted a lot of things. There's one bee that we are pretty sure is a specialist only on chestnuts. Mm -hmm. um, we're still finding it on chinkapins, and it now seems to be moving back on to um, these um, Chinese um, American chestnut back crosses. Yeah. So mm -hmm. there's positives there. There is. Now, you, but I'm sorry, impacts but, are huge on these invasives. Oh, mm -hmm. yeah, without a doubt. Um, you've mentioned specialist bees a few times mm -hmm. now. Um can you discuss the the significance of specialist bees? Because it's it's enough that you've you've brought it up a few times. So I, I just would like to go over the importance of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and this is an emphasis um, of ours now, particularly as we began to realize that um, that bees are not just roaming around um, using whatever pollen and nectar um, happens to be available on whatever plant that's available. Um, if you if you were to look at the literature, it's pretty extensive, um, and you look at the chemical composition of pollen nectar, it is all over the map. 
the nutrition levels are different, but so are the secondary compounds. There's essentially um, something between a set of poisons and a set of um, uh, what would what would we call it detractants. Okay. Um, there's probably a better word than that, but um, there are repellents. Um, and so, and then you do things like swap the pollen loads of different sets of bees, and all the young die. So, what what's going on is that we know that some bees are only using the pollen. These would be the highly specialized bees, okay. only using pollen from one group. An example would be willow, which people tend, unless you're a honeybee person, you don't even think of them as often as a blooming plant, but. Yeah, um, yeah. They have a set of bees, I think in uh, our area, there's eight species, only use willow pollen. No willow, those eight species are gone. We can go down a list and um, of the bees that carry pollen, um, some bees are, are parasites of other bees. So of the pollen-carrying bees, um, about somewhere between 30 and 40% are meet our category of specialized, which means that they're using... Um, only plants from one family level to down to one species level, okay. and then eat, and then all the remainder um, are more Catholic in their tastes of for pollen, including honeybees. But they all have preferences too. So even the most generalist of bees, honeybees, would be on that list. Um, turn their noses up at um, uh, certain kinds of pollens and nectars, even too. Um, they're all designed differently, so all those sizes and shapes of flowers have different sizes and shapes of bees that are optimized to um, work with a set of plants. So um, the um, the world is carved up in very different ways um, to for different groups of bees to exploit um, these different time windows when um, plants are blooming. So. Uh, the bees that are out now in the spring are really different from the bees that are out at the end of the summer when you have a golden aster um, kind of complex um, doing a lot of the blooming and you have, um, you know, it's very much emphasized in the composites, um, whereas in the spring you have a lot of tree pollen and then you have all the vernal plants underneath the uh, trees and forests um, and um and, and it goes on and on. You know, we can look at yeah. wetlands, willow, pontedaria, which is pickerel weed, mm -hmm. has specialists early on that. And it's um, endlessly fascinating. Um, and at the same time, you're not going to save the bees by simply planting a small set of flowers that may attract a lot of bees. But that would be and the, uh, some of these. And so that's always good. Attracting yeah. bees is always mm -hmm. good. Yeah. Um, but you could think of a, a lot of these kinds of plantings as sort of a analogous to bird feeders. So mm -hmm. if I were going to save the birds, one approach would be, well, I'll save the birds because I'm going to put up a bunch of bird feeders. And I'll say, look, there are a lot more birds now because of my bird feeders. But we all know that in the middle of the city and in a lot of other places, when you put up a bird feeder, you just get a bunch of you know, sparrows and starlings, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they are yeah. birds, but we have to think, when we think of bees, we have to also be aware that it's not a unibody, like mm -hmm. all bees are just like happy as a clam on, um, you know, a small set of mints and clovers. Um, we, in the largest sense, want to really basically augment 
what the local flora is and bring some of that diversity into our plantings. Now, for big growers like yourselves and uh, people who work on those kinds of things, that's difficult to do Mm -hmm. because from a production point of view, you know, um, all of a sudden your costs go way up when you start futzing around with um, plants that um, don't particularly want to be, you know, cranked out by the Mm -hmm. the millions. So it's just an emphasis that we have now um, to hopefully diversify the uh, plant availability to work with the local native plant societies to um, look at your land, your property and your landscape and see what you can do to um, increase the already existing plant fauna, which may be repressed. Mm-hmm. You know, we certainly are doing that here too. Um, and um, encourage them by often discouraging your invasives, um, removing plants, um, allowing disturbance or not allowing disturbance, all depends. And then maybe um, integrating more into these naturalized landscapes. When you're dealing with houses and um, plantings, you know, why why not goof around with um, um, uh, a, a landscape with a lot of ornamentals and um, plants that have um, bees throughout a big chunk of the year for your enjoyment? That's the same like bird feeders. Like we're yeah. attracting bees for our enjoyment. We're not suppo- necessarily yes. supporting bees. So it's a difference between attraction and supporting. So we we want both under different circumstances, mm-hmm. but we're trying to emphasize that plantings be used to support bee populations. Well, the, one of the things we, we discuss here all the time is that there's there's not one package that satisfies everything. You, mm-hmm. There's not one solution that you can just broadly place over it as a blanket and fix it all. If you want a healthy community, you have to remember it's a community and it mm-hmm. supports a lot of different things. It's wildlife, it's plants, it's pollinators, right. it's insects. And you need a lot of things to support that. It's not just, oh, I'm going to plant this one plant and that's going to solve everything. It it yep. it doesn't do that. So, you know, it, it's funny because the light bulb went over my head as you were explaining that. I'm like, well, why don't we have seed mixes that that support some of these mm-hmm. things? Yeah. Or or we list, you know, very broadly in our catalog things that support pollinators, but it doesn't get specific. Yeah. And maybe that's one place that we can help because if people want to know this. Yeah. We need to supply them with that mm-hmm. information. You know, we're we're their their resource. We need to get better at that. So mm-hmm. immediately, well, I'm like, I, look at what I'm learning. Yeah. I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. You know that, and our if we don't know, a lot of our customers don't know. So, right. Well, it's so obscure. I mean, that information is not common knowledge. Um, whereas, um, you know, what's a good bee plant has been common knowledge because the honeybee people are constantly yeah, looking for yeah. good bee plants, and so their measure is going to be really different from the measure that um, the native bee people look at because the native bees have all these different kinds of requirements, not unsurprisingly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's always, uh, you're reminding me of that one uh, graphic that always comes out on Facebook and starts making the rounds in all the pollinator groups probably in end of February, early March, and it's like the, the top nine plants for bees, and I think, maybe one or two or three of them are, are native, but dandelion's always on that list. What do right. you, what do you yeah. think about dandelion as a, a, a early season pollinator plant or, or bee plant? Cause it's always touted as being, Oh, don't get rid of the dandelions in your, in your lawn or in your yard. Right. Um, but I've well, heard, if you're dealing with, with the lawn, the lawn universe, 
then dandelions are great, right? Mm-hmm. Because if you're if you're committed to having a lawn, your options are relatively few. You can integrate in some other kinds of plants, but not a whole lot. Like you can introduce white clover, another non-native. Mm-hmm. Bees go to that. Bees go to um, dandelions, um, but they're um, particularly. Um, whenever you think about this, a, a general rule of thumb is if it's not native, it's not supporting that much. It's mm-hmm. more of a, um, you might get bees on, yellow sweet clover is a good example, white clover, dandelions, but it's more of a 7-Eleven kind of situation. <laughs> yeah. I got a lot of nectar, I got some <laughs> pollen, I'm going to support a bunch of the um, hoodlum, you know, uh, bees that are uh, common everywhere. Um, and um, the the bees, the sensitive, you know, specialist bees that are only going to willow, but you know, they're they're SOL on those. Yeah. But if you have a lawn, then you know, go wild, plant it all in dandelions. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a problem. <laughs> Just don't bring that way of thinking to like now. I'm going to seed bomb dandelions into mm-hmm. field habitats and naturalized landscapes. You want to extract that out there and use the um, complexity of already existing and availability of already existing native plants in those environments and build that up and, um, you know, get rid of the yellow sweet clover and the white clover and move in, you know, the many other kinds of things that you could or, which is a better strategy, is to um, dial down as much as possible those invasives like Mm -hmm. one way is to you know try and dig everything up and get rid of all the invasives and just come up with this very clean landscape that's invasive free but that's that's really not realistic and you may be doing more damage than good sometimes it's better to just you know come in with your um, brush hooks and weed whips and things and edit out and knock back the competition um, to favor the the natives um, in those kinds of environments. Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's never there's never one answer in all these kinds of things. <laughs> so in a lawn, dandelion's great. Elsewhere, nope, don't want them. Mm-hmm. Now, we, one thing that you hear a lot about is decline of decline of bees. Mm-hmm. Is there is there mm-hmm. one category that's affected most? Is there is there are specialists more in danger because they're specialists? Is is it is the decline is is it being unfairly cast over the whole genus of bee? Or and, and I'll even ask too because uh, a lot of people when they talk about the decline of bees, again, automatically think of honeybees, like we were mentioning earlier. I'm assuming that's yeah. that's the case with well, I know it's the case with native bees as well. Is it more drastic with native bees than it is is honeybees? So, uh, so first of all, honeybees have a separate set of issues, and they have. Um, their population changes are um, in most ways um, divorced from the issues that are going on for the native species. So a lot of native species are unaffected by all the problems that honeybees have in terms of the honeybee diseases are so keyed in on these very weird, highly specialized bees that don't have analogs in um, our native fauna that it actually works out well from the native bees point of view okay. is that we don't get a lot of bleed over of honeybee problems. Um, so native bee problems tend still to be um, associated with plants. Loss of habitat, again, no willow, no willow bees. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go down this long list and ask 
here's a list of the specialist bees. How are their plants doing? We'll give you an answer to how how those bees are doing. But um, other than that, uh, where I can absolutely tell you that native bees have declined because I know that their habitats have, have declined. Mm-hmm. But on top of that, I can't give you any other information, really, because um, we don't have a monitoring program. So we have some very really coarse level stuff like, oh, who is, you know, BX, who's seen that in the last, you know, 30 years? Um, and it might be no one, yeah. but you know what? They may not have ever looked on the plant that it likes or been in the right place at the right time. There is literally just handfuls of people yeah. looking for these native bees. So how would you, how would you know? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the state, which is really lousy. Um, and so a lot of people in the media in particular, I was really ready to call um, the decline of bees, but um, the nuance is that it's all habitat and and all uh, wild plants and animals are suffering equally because it's going back. And then everything else becomes um, a inspection of the details. Are we, for example, planting too many trees? So a lot of these um, bees use plants that occur in meadows. And if mm-hmm. every um, uh, everybody's looking to plant a tree somewhere, well, that's not very balanced, right? Because mm-hmm. a lot of our landscapes have traditionally had big chunks of open landscape in them. And now we're either going towards mature forest as our goal or we're going to, you know, lawn, suburban, um, anthropogenic um, kinds of habitats. What we are losing is that sort of natural transitional habitat, mm-hmm. successional habitats where things are burned or used or grazed or, um, you know, our farm farm landscapes used to provide that all the time because they things uh, were logged or sheep were allowed in and then taken away. But now we're just too efficient. So I have great concerns even though I don't have the data, mm-hmm. um, that we're losing some components of bees, but I don't have any evidence about that they're gone because if you don't look, you don't mm-hmm. you you don't you don't know. Yeah, I'm, so, I'm sure if you monitored like the pine barrens of New Jersey, you would probably see a lot less. You would think because that's that doesn't change too often, and it's. Um, you would think there would be a lot less loss there compared to somewhere else. Yeah, but, and, um, like even still in the Pine Barrens, but you got close to the, the shore where it is more developed um, and you went from natural habitat to parking lots mm-hmm. and, and houses and um, that's it. <laughs> even the fringes, if they're affected, yeah. affect yeah. it. So it's, I'm, I'm sure it would change just area to area, even small, like um, right. distances. Well, the Pine Barrens, uh, you know, suffer from lack of fire. Like yeah. that was a, a habitat that burned all the time uh, from Native American communities, um, used that to manipulate those environments to, you know, uh, basically the crappy farmlands that were there that would wink in and wink out and yeah. the colonists who were just inefficient. And then you had large grazing animals that are gone and on so on and so forth. And now we're just planting it into pine or letting it become pine. Yeah. And we really need to light some matches out there, fellas. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, it's funny because even a lot of the restorations that we see aren't the proper restorations. Mm-hmm. They're they're restoring it to what it was ten or twenty years ago, but what it was ten years ago, what it wasn't what it was thirty or forty years ago. Mm-hmm. It's it, there's just right. so many channels in which it's changed 
what's the pre- you know and some things that can't be reversed unfortunately where right. things have been dammed up or uh yeah. it was um fresh water and now it's brackish you know it's it, there's so much damage has been done over so many centuries what really is the the proper restoration you, yeah. it, it's, yeah. it's almost hard to tell like which what period are, what period of time are you trying to restore and what's really best for for the pollinators or the yeah. bees yeah, yeah. So, moving target but <laughs> what's the last time that you um uh heard a bobwhite quail in the pine barrens? yeah and then if you go back to when the colonists came, that area had heath hens, which are greater prairie chickens living in them. Wow, I, I um, didn't even know that. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, we, I had the conversation with a customer just the other day. I was trying to think back the last time I saw a pheasant. Um, I grew up in, in Bucks County, PA, and I think the last time was probably like 1989. Uh, the habitat just doesn't even exist anymore where they were, and it's yeah. – um, you know, and it's all where it was farm. It's it's all McMansions now, so it's uh, or or forests. So well, it's, and the farms are too clean. Yeah, so <laughs> you don't have. Yeah. yeah, there's no weeds. There's no insects left. Mm-hmm. It's grow crop, and they're very efficient to make great uh, amount of um, yield per acre, which is important for the world and means less wild habitats are plowed up to support the same people. But you're not going to get bobwhite and pheasant mm-hmm. anymore because nothing for them to eat yeah. and then the farmers are too clean cultivating um and herbiciding out the edges of the the farm plots mm-hmm. ditches are cleaned out all that kind of stuff and, um, and unfortunately even if you're so it's just one model yeah even if you're raising them in captivity I, I one of uh one of our customers was trying to raise quail in captivity and he was saying that the unfortunate problem was as soon as he rele- released them they would climb right up a telephone pole <laughs> or, or and and hawks were just like picking them off he's like they were gone within yeah. within hours of releasing them like they just didn't know that how is, to survive yeah. raising quail or pheasant is not a successful strategy pretty much end of topic <laughs> if you want to put them out you know if you want to put them out then shoot them right away which is what these hunting preserves mm-hmm. do exactly to provide their sporting experience that's fine, but you're not going to, um, you have to deal with the core problem, which is the habitats no longer mm-hmm. can support these kinds of environments. And you need a lot for, yeah. like to have quail, it's not just like, well, my farm, you know, my 250 mm-hmm. acres, not enough. You need square miles upon square miles mm-hmm. of good habitat to support the populations long term. But it's just a, it's just an indicator that we've moved from uh, an environment with lots of early successional habitats and um, open, weedy pasture um, things to um, a much more used environment or wooded. Mm-hmm. And um, so we have to, I think, be careful about um, overplanting trees or devaluing um, open land because there's still lots and lots of uh, plants and, and critters, particularly in a, a place like the Pine Barrens that have traditionally been uh, open country to large extent because of this disturbance factor and the fact that you are dealing with um, sugar sands. Um, but eventually everything, because we have a lot of rain, will become trees if you remove the disturbance factors mm-hmm. and you put out every single fire. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, even a even a meadow wants to become a forest if 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 you leave it alone. Yeah, in the east, certain, that yeah. is, we're not prairies; they're just uh, temporary meadows. <laughs> yeah. There's there's Something just to too much rain. Back. Yeah. It, now, are, are we? Do you think that we're too far gone for a solution for this? Do you think that we're at a point where we can't fix what has already been broken? No. No, I think um, most of these bee species are around in small pockets. So uh, remember, they're tiny. So if you have a, a small patch of um, uh, Lysimachias, some of the oil-bearing um, loose stripes, mm. um, you can still find the now very difficult to find bees that specialize on those. Okay. So um, we just have to be more conscious that um, uh, at, as landowners, property owners, um, and managers of state and county lands and highway managers that um, mowing or planting trees is not the only solution, and we're going to have to be a little more nuanced. You may still spend just the same amount of money, but you're going to have to get people, which is a good thing, right, who Mm -hmm. know more about plants to come in and say, you know what, what we want to do here is just do a once a year um, mow to set back the woody plants and then we want to cut, do you know targeted herbiciding of invasives or brush cutting or whatever it is of the rest but someone has to be able to you know understand that that's an invasive species and so um, it's different from either herbiciding everything or mowing everything we're just going to have to be smarter about it and then you have to start taking into consideration that um, we need to bring back um, big chunks of uh, the plant community that are getting squeezed out just by our um, society's preferences or society in some ways it's not even a preference it's it's simply a um, you know uh, it's easy to um, just walk away from a field and it'll just become mm-hmm. trees and that looks good yeah um, or let's ignore all the, the fact that we're fields are full of autumn olive and bush honeysuckles and you know it's green, and that's good, right? <laughs> yeah, it's Bradford pear and and or calorie yeah. pear, and it it looks great at one of flowers. You know, it's but exactly, exactly. So, so I'm Sam, dealing with calorie pear right here all the time. So yeah. I know that legacy. <laughs> so Sam, I want to I want to kick it back a little bit. You were talking about the the specialist bees on chestnuts, and and chinkapins. Um, I actually knew about what you're talking about a little bit because I was on your guy's Facebook page or Facebook group earlier, and the pictures you put up of those bees were obviously fantastic. How do those pictures uh, help your research? Like, uh uh-huh. Well, um, it's interesting because um, those pictures are a um, an amalgamation of somewhere between 25 and 150 individual shots, um, and that allows us to get a completely in focus, um, super detailed. Um, shot that will blow up to the size of the wall, and they're all public domain, by the way, so you can grab whatever you want. Um, we The reason we started down that road is we were interested in developing an online museum that had a lot of detail of these bees because regular museums um, had been closing, and people in um, like my uh, colleagues who are identifying bees um, you can use these um, word keys that go through a set of characters to separate out the different species. But in the end, um, if you had a collection of bees, you would take your bee and compare it to the others and say, mm, yep, looks like it are, no way, that 
totally doesn't look like the rest of them. Mm. So we wanted um, that kind of level of um, of uh, photography um, so that people, when they're doing their identifications at the end, they could compare their specimen to some known um, numbies, um, at least online. Okay. But at the same time, um, if I was going to go to all this trouble, uh, just because I end up doing a lot of the photoshopping, other our teams here do this, a lot of the volunteers do a lot of the picture taking. You know, it's got to look pretty because mm-hmm. I want to work on. <laughs> I, it's just a completely selfish thing. I want to work on beautiful looking bees and make them as beautiful as possible because it feeds my soul. I don't want some raggedy ass um, <laughs> uh, uh, bee photography. Um, just because the specimen, you know, happens to be the right species. So we're selecting out, we're washing and drying. We have a little station that's like a, uh, a, a bee beauty salon. <laughs> um, and um, we spend a lot of time, more than necessary, to just make, get the job done, to make, make these things beautiful. The secondary impact has been that it's um, completely not... Um, uh, my thought, because I thought I'm just providing these to my, you know, a tiny set of colleagues who want to look at these for ID. But it turns out that when you do these pictures of beautiful bees, that I'm not the only person who thinks they're beautiful. Mm-hmm. And so we get a lot of attention from um, the public because um, we put them up on on Flickr because it's an easy place to share mm-hmm. photography. Mm-hmm. And it went from there. Um, and now, you know, we have millions upon millions of views and thousands and, and thousands of followers. And we use it as a, um, a platform to blog about um, these bees and tell stories like uh, the chestnut story mm-hmm. and to tell them about all the different kinds of varieties. And we really encourage people to follow us on, we're on um, Instagram, Flickr, Facebook and Tumblr, uh, mm-hmm. where you'll see these um, stories about these bees that you're never going to hear about because everything's yeah, and, and I'll, I'll second that that everyone who's listening to this should go go and follow go. these accounts because it really is and, just amazing. And we're going to share the links on our webpage okay. uh, when we post this, okay. so mm-hmm. to make sure everyone can get to all those easily. Um, mm-hmm. But I had shared the the Flickr page with my fiance, and after being completely blown away by the the photos the first thing she noticed was the amount she was impressed with how many followers on Flickr there was she's like wow look at the amount of people that have already found this and are 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 already following this and that's that's great when you have a tool that just is so great that it's drawing the public to it to help you with the cause I mean it's they're also used a lot because everything is public domain in fact we say right in our profile on Flickr where you get the the highest resolution photographs, the originals can be downloaded from there. Like, don't bother us by asking us for permission. We're going to say <laughs> yes, and we don't care. We want you to use this, and you can you can print them out and sell them, which people do. And you can you can modify them. Um, you can use them for um, advertising, and also in your educational components. Mm-hmm. You can put them on signs. We're going to say yes, and we encourage you to do that. And um, so that's that kind of makes us special too, because um, you can just grab our stuff, and who doesn't who doesn't want that? Exactly. Um, you we see our pictures everywhere, and 
a lot of times they've been so replicated that there's like not a a a uh, not a thread back to us, but we, we can tell. Like, <laughs> yeah, we know that picture. Yeah, so I was that's gonna, fun. I was and gonna say I don't know that it. too many other people are doing photos like that of that detail, yeah. which are the detail is just astounding. It's it's overwhelming yeah. almost. We're a little. We're, there's a little OCD component there. I'm not going to say that's not the case, but it works. I, I, I completely appreciate the OCD yeah. component. That's that's a big component of my everyday everyday life. So I appreciate that. So Tom, go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, you can. No, no. All good. right. Um, one. Of the, I know we talked about honeybees a lot, but I know there's some research being done about the uh, basically about honeybees and how they impact native bees. Um, negatively. Can can you speak to that mm-hmm. at all? Yeah, there has been a lot of uh, more recent um, information on impacts of honeybees. So just some background, honeybees are um, part of a group of bees, very similar, and that they produce comb and um, store nectar product uh, as honey over years. Almost all of those are Asian species. They're always colonial, one species has made it over to Europe and Africa, um, and that's our European honeybee. Then the colonists, almost right away, 1600s, um, uh, they brought over honeybees over to here. North, the, all the Americas have no honeybees. Mm-hmm. Um, the honeybee life history is radically different from anything that we have on this continent as a native bee species. So they're a very poor model for um uh, how our native bees are working. So I tell people, like anything you know about honeybees, you need to forget because we're working a very different system. Um, and so that's the context there for that. Um, but that's what people know. People know honeybees. They hear a lot of um, honeybees are declining. Uh, our bees are declining. They then make that jump because of this lack of information to, well, we're going to need to bring in honeybees or support honeybees. Mm-hmm. So ecologically, though, that's um, that's uh, a kind of an inappropriate um, uh, response. So um, honeybees are very useful and necessary in certain commercial kinds of pollination activities. Um, they also are the only thing that you're going to find that produces honey. So if you want mm-hmm. honey, you have to have honeybees. But if you also want honey, you could buy honey from that's imported from all these other countries too. So okay. it's not a, a necessity. Um, they are also very cool. I mean, mm-hmm. the, there's these huge colonies which have this really fascinating life history, and they do things you're just not going to see anywhere else. That's another reason to have honeybees is if you just love that complexity. But if you are concerned about the environment and the ecology um, and um, are want to save the bees, then ha- as a homeowner or a small landowner, bringing in honeybees or becoming a beekeeper, that is not a um, useful thing ecologically uh, because for a couple of reasons. One, they are competitors with native bees. So um, you can think there's X amount of pollen and nectar. Um, honeybees are incredibly efficient, and they also grab as much um, nectar as they can to create honey, which is their storage product. And they're basically vacating a lot of the the uh, the uh, floral resources in any particular area. 
um, because they're so good at it. Okay. And so that means automatically you're starving out a set of bees um, by the native species by doing that. Additionally, um, if you aren't necessarily um, uh, interested in saving just native bees, but you're interested in saving honeybees, you're having and uh, providing ground for a small set of honeybees is doing nothing to save the species of honeybees. So okay. honeybees issues are have to do with pathogens and the intersection and um, inner um, digitization of loss of habitat and also pesticides and herbicides because a lot of times honeybees are purposefully placed in agricultural systems mm-hmm. and that um, you know, it's complicated and somewhat controversial, but certainly pesticides are, uh, you know, uh, uh, insecticides in particular, but also um, herbicides and also fungicides have components that will kill honeybees. So you stress them out no matter how you look at it, and then all these other introduced pathogens are, are decreasing the numbers and types of honeybees. But having... you. But an individual person who's not a professional, who's not part of, um, you know, raising these things commercially, having another honeybee hive is not adding to the saving of honeybees. It's competing with the native bee species. So ecologically, I can't be an advocate for anyone to bring in honeybees Mm -hmm. in any kind of circumstances because it's not necessary. So we have um, all the pollination we need from our native bee species who of course grew up with all the native plants and they also leak over and will do the pollination of your your garden of your community garden of your orchards so no none of the um, orchards in the eastern united states for example need honeybees because the native bees will move in and do the pollination there you have to get into really industrial levels of um, plants that have no um, surrounding native habitat in which the native bees can be called in from before you have to actually bring in honeybees to mm-hmm. affect pollination. So those are a set of factors to weigh. Um, you know, if you want honeybees, just like if you want to, you know, have dogs and cats, um, you know, knock yourself out. But if you think you're doing it because you're helping the world, it's the opposite. You know, you're <laughs> actually part of the problem doing that. So, so that's my soapbox on that. I think they're cool, um, but um, I don't keep them, and I buy my honey from the store. So, um, and we're already I talking about generally discourage that. We're already talking about loss of habitat. So you have these competing species working on less right. and less mm-hmm. to to forage off of. Yeah. You, I think the the main issue is that people think they're doing a good thing mm-hmm. a lot of times by having honeybees, and they're actually not. And a lot of people are paying other people to bring in honeybees to their property because it's saving the bees. But again, it's not saving honeybees really because you're not um, you're not doing anything that solves the problem, um, and you're competing then with all the native bee species. So once people kind of realize that, then it's um, you know pretty obvious that um, you know the solution is to not not do those kinds of things, not bring honeybees into native um, naturalized landscapes. Mm-hmm. Um, but who knows that? I mean, there's so little information out there about the the non-honeybee bees because culturally no one 
does movies about them and makes <laughs> cute little figurines and have uh, Winnie the Pooh or, yeah. you know, we can go on and on with all the imagery that's associated with um, the, you know, introduced European honeybee. And you also have to think that when you have honeybees in your backyard, those honeybees are not staying in your backyard. They're mm -hmm. impacting all your neighbors. It's as if you, you know, introduced, um, uh, you know, uh, fighting dogs and then just let them roam around the neighborhood um, <laughs> at the same time. You would not do that or hogs or cattle or chickens. Um, you know, you have to be respectful um, of other people's um, landscapes, too who may not be interested in having honeybees, but you, you basically inflict them on um, mm. an entire mile radius around your hives. Well, we, I'm sorry, go ahead. Tom. Oh, I, I was going to say, Sam, it might have been you who, who was the one that said this, but one of the, my wife's an English teacher and she's going to get upset if I don't get this right, <laughs> but it's either metaphor or simile. I don't remember which one, but you compared honeybees basically to cattle. There, there were cows in a way. Um, and, 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 agricultural system versus native bees which are wild and right not cattle <laughs> yeah honeybees are honeybees are a commodity they're actually regulated and tended to at the federal level by USDA um, and USGS where I work you know we're we're on the non-commodity wild plant and animal side of things so um, they are they uh, they produce a food product so um, you know you have um, uh, people who look at the um, the raising of bees and are concerned about those things. And they're tracked a lot better mm -hmm. than um, the native bees, which are essentially not tracked at all. I think probably that maybe honeybees are tracked because people are making money off of them. It's, yeah. it's, it's a yeah. source of income mm -hmm. for some of these people. So if there's a decline in income, there's, there's cause for concern. Um, you would think so, but I think mostly it's um, – you know, a federal USDA statistics of agriculture kind oh. of thing. Okay. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think, well, if people were not making any money at all on them, then they probably wouldn't wouldn't track it. But um, the, there's interest in, you know, numbers of colonies from um, just a regulatory kind of uh, viewpoint because mm -hmm. they have to justify um, the effort that's gone into um, looking at them to see if there's any problems with um, supply and demand and um you know, uh, the, the numbers of honeybees in the world. Okay. It's, it's, if there, and I don't even, I don't even know if this is possible and it, it, I think we've, we've probably already touched on it. If there was just one singular point, and I don't know if that's even possible that, that could just instantly get across to the general public when it comes to, to native bees. Is there, is there one singular point that everyone that, that would, that or one thing that everyone could do that would just change or help help change. Yeah, I mean it's it's really clear. You don't really have to know that much about um, native bees. What you do need to know is that they require blooming native plants. So the more you shift your whatever your landscape is, whether it's your quarter acre lot or it's your farm or it's your vacation home to supporting a wide variety of native plants that bloom, that's the key to um, saving bees. And if you have a lawn, shame on you, because <laughs> <laughs> that should all be uh, blooming plants. And, you know, you have to all... That, that will be a tough paradigm. It drives me crazy to see these, you know, 30-acre lawns in front yeah. of, you yeah. know, someone's house. 
you know the funny thing is is with with the next generation like my kids look at at the upkeeping of people taking care of lawns and they're like we don't want to do that (laughs) we we you know why why are we doing this you know and it's um I, I think it's it's funny as the next generation is coming, like, you know, the dream was, you know, 30 years ago or the last generation, you want to move out of the city, you want to move and have a big lawn, you want a big house, a big car. I, I think that that's shifting again a little bit. Like my kids look at it and we're like, why do we have this? Because we have an area in the back that's that's uh, wetlands. They're like, we like that much better. We don't have to take care yeah. of it. It just kind of yeah. takes care of itself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I want to see I want to see that kind of complexity and enjoy all those different patterns and those blooms mm-hmm. and you know, we have this problem sometimes that people don't have no idea what the wild plants are. And so if you don't know just like if you don't know what the the wild native bees are, how do you how can you appreciate them? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And if we don't know what's an invasive plant and what the different characters and why these flowers are in different places in their life history and their natural histories, um, even their uses. You know, like we don't have people who are using a lot of these native plants like they would in the past for um, medicinal uses or food, then it just becomes something that's green. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not not dirt, so we're good. Check that box. <laughs> so Sam, we're I should uh, point out, I should point out that for native bees, there are a bunch of native bees that love basically piles of dirt yeah. or open soil or um, you know embankments that are cut open. They that for some bees, you know, again we have many different kinds of species, and each of them has their preferences. Some of those bees. Um, love upturned tree root masses. Um, they love cut banks. Um, they love stream edges. They love even, there's even bees that uh, prefer to be on um, uh, beaten down uh, pathways in the dirt. You know, they want hard parks out, hard packed soils. Mm-hmm. So um, if you have the opportunity in your, um, you know, lawn, garden, um, the places that you use to leave a back corner just open or have a pile of dirt or um, some place that doesn't want to grow anything, that's great. That's a good mm-hmm. nesting site. And, and that's all things that I think people see and want to get rid of or fix, mm-hmm. but it's, it doesn't need to be fixed. <laughs> right. Yeah. Nope. No. So, so Sam, as, uh, as we're starting to wrap up here, one thing I think would be remiss if we didn't ask you about, um, just because it's a work of art, is, is your car. Uh, the the first time I actually at Millersville, when we were talking earlier, um, I actually parked right next to you and I took, I got out and I took a picture because I was like, this is the coolest thing I've (laughs) seen. This thing is just amazing. And I, I didn't know it was your car at the time until I saw you at the, um, ecological landscape association event in, uh, in Delaware and parked right next to that same car again. And, uh, then when we were leaving, I saw you get in and drive away. And I'm like, oh, that it makes so much sense now that that was that was right. your car. Yeah. What's the story of of your car? Well, I I guess I have always painted my vehicles. Initially, it was just to keep them from rusting out, and I would just use house paint or spray something on it. And then I was like, oh, if um, I've gotten over the can't touch my beautiful or not beautiful paint finish then why not have a little fun here? And now I'm going to paint a, a shark on the side of the <laughs> truck. Or It just got worse and worse, and, and now I, um, I have pop-riveted um, a bunch of copper scales to the front of the car. I've got a 
a fin on the top mm-hmm. that is, um, uh, you know, in this particular version is a dragon head. And, um, uh, and I, I, first of all, I, I totally enjoy that because I'm driving a 1990s Saturn. So <laughs> what kind of car is that to like, you, you can, you can do anything to that car. It'll be a, a grade up at this point, yeah. after 20 years. But the, one of the, the best things is that, um, I say, uh, that I can, I can drive anywhere and people will smile like yeah. you were talking about oh i'm going to take a picture of that when i drive down the road people are smiling and um they would not do that if i was driving a 20 year old saturn <laughs> yeah. so i kind of look at it as my um i'm uh you know just by driving back and forth to um work i'm my karma levels are going way up yeah yeah um, oh, yeah. yeah i you know and no one's going to steal it I'm, <laughs> I'm smiling just thinking about it, actually, because y- y- when yep. when Tom like showed pictures and and just he was like talking about the chains with the bells and, um, you know, it's just you can't help but to smile. Yeah. That's not like, and it's something I never thought of. I'm like, but why don't I have one of those? <laughs> like, <laughs> I maybe, oh my god, maybe, yeah, maybe it's we sacred. could start a new trend. Yeah, well, people are so uptight about it; they'll let it go to. To hell, you yeah. know, with um, paint peeling and all kinds of, you know, who knows what going on. But, you know, you say, well, why don't you, you know, people make comments and say, hey, why don't you do that to your car? Like, oh, no, um, the resale value. And it's, you know, I just go to Sherwin Williams or another, um, you know, paint shop and get the, um, get the off the shelf um, uh, metal enamel paint. And, you know, I play around with a little, uh, line tape sometimes, mm-hmm. or other times I'm just freehand it. It's super easy to do. All right, all right. That's my next. That's my next goal. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. All right. So we we always end the podcast with with the same final question, and and we've expanded it only because the topics that we've dealt with are so diverse. It, it's kind of hard to narrow this down just to native plants because we've kind of gone in all directions. But we uh-huh. we we like to ask what what your favorite native plant is but you can instead of or include a favorite bird and i guess we should include a bee yeah yeah so you you can yeah. do one of each or you can just choose one whatever whatever you want to choose right well i have many favorite native plants because i'm constantly looking at them because that's how i find my my uh, bees and so right now i'm doing a lot with uh, lysomachias so okay. those would be the native loose stripes not the purple loose stripes um, and um, I'm particularly in the area, we've got a lot of world um, loose strife and um, uh, what's the other fringe loose strife. And they have a bee that's very rare now. Macropus is, doesn't mm-hmm. have a common name, but it's an oil. It uses oils. So mm-hmm. these uh, flowers produce uh, oils instead of or in addition to nectar. I'm not sure which. And these bees require these oils to feed to their young. And um, uh, it turns out that um, I have both the world blue stripe and um, the bee, which is only the second place I've ever found them at all, um, right here on this uh, 30-acre compound. So now I've started cultivating them and um, managing my landscape, and um, we'll be doing more and more studies of them. And I'm, I'm really enjoying the loot stripes. 
um, as just as a, a plant, you know, to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that's a, a great example because people hear loosestrife and they think of the invasive species and they forget about the yeah. the, the mm-hmm. native species. So it's Lysimachia, not Lithrum. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, Sam, do you, ha- do you have a final thought that you'd like to, to wrap up with and, and send everyone home with? Um, I guess the, my only final thought would be to really to emphasize that um, native bee conservation is the conservation of native plants. And the mm-hmm. greater the diversity of native plants that you um, maintain, the more benefit you're going to be doing to native bees, even if you don't know what the species of native bees might be. Mm-hmm. All right. Awesome. How about you, Fran? Yeah. I learned a lot today. Yeah, I, I really did. It actually, it's it's uh, it's overwhelming. It's uh, I have a lot of final. Yeah, you know, it, it's hard because I I didn't even know knowing so little about this topic. You know, not even thinking how well it ties into the things I know about, um, and just you know, it makes me look at things that I thought I knew differently already. Um, it's just it it just amazes me like that that I it never it never ceases to amaze me how much I keep learning mm-hmm. about this and how much I don't know yeah you know and that's well you guys already know so much really in a way because you know so much about um, native plants mm-hmm. and um, you most most people including a lot of the bee researchers you know are very weak on their you know abilities to um, identify and know the characteristics and mm-hmm. the habitats of these native plants and, you know, have a degree of plant blindness themselves when they walk around. So mm-hmm. um, you just need to be, you know, sort of ramp up a little bit about some of the bee stuff and, and then you'll, and you, wow. you know, if you, if you follow us, you'll hear stories about like, oh, daughter has these really interesting bees on it or, you know, a lot of stuff like, oh, oh my gosh, I didn't even think about the fact that um, you know spring beauties have their own bee and it's being taken over by lesser celandine and you know there's it adds a whole additional level to the conservation of native plants another mm-hmm. reason to plant native plants mm-hmm. other than like wave the flag they're you know American plants and of course we want the natives to they're supporting bees and many other insects yeah. that we um, we don't think about and um, they're really the foundation for you know most of the life in the area i i just know that the next time i go back outside and i'm looking at birds or plants it's just going to i'm going to look at everything differently now Mm -hmm. and it's you know i don't necessarily get drawn to looking at the bees but i will now and that's it's just you just keep looking further into it's like this picture that you focus on and all of a sudden you see a whole different picture and that's how i kind of feel about this the more i Mm -hmm. the more i learn yeah tom well get a pair of um butterfly binoculars there's a pentax one that's like a hundred bucks okay and they focus it down right 18 inches and um at eight power and if you're at 18 inches and eight power you can see a lot that um you would not be able to see, you know, with your naked eye. Your naked mm-hmm. eye just can't resolve all these, um, you mm-hmm. know, interesting little uh, facets of um, of native bees. Yeah, they're too small. Well, most I, of most of the most of the average native bee in any landscape is the size of a grain of rice. Yeah, and it's you know it's funny because I was actually just looking at binoculars over the weekend, <laughs> so and I I, I oh. didn't know where to where to start. So now I know. Now I know where actually. Yeah. So and that's those perfect. Pen, those Pentax butterfly binoculars, uh, they're I I use them for bird watching too. So it's not like you um, 
have to get one thing mm-hmm. or another. And that's why we were looking at them, actually, like if we were to get uh, like bird binoculars. Yeah, and that's what – so that's – all right. I just – I wrote it down too, so I know what I'm doing after, after we're yeah. done today. <laughs> Tom, do you have a final thought? Yeah, and it's uh, one of the things that I really enjoy – every summer is just uh we we put native gardens in front of our house and i love just looking at all not just the bees but all the insects and uh and birds that that forage and and feed on them but um we have a wild area behind our seed farm um that's uh it's a green acres parcel that's that's pretty much been untouched in the last probably 60 to 80 years and mm-hmm. I can't wait to go out there and start looking at some of the stuff that's blooming there for native bees. Because I, I hadn't even thought about going out there and looking at some of this stuff that isn't necessarily a garden plant, but it still blooms. And yeah. I'm sure bees are still using it, but uh, I might have to borrow your your binoculars if I don't get a pair I, myself. I will lend them to you. So. I'm surprised you don't have a pair. Yeah. <laughs> I, thought, I thought you had a pair for some reason. So I, I have a pair of binoculars, not... Not butterfly binoculars. Okay. All right. All right. Good. <laughs> but uh, Sam, one last thing before uh, we we end things. How can people mm-hmm. get involved in and help you guys out? Um, right now we are uh, overwhelmed, so we, okay. there, we we don't get a lot of funding. I have a bunch of volunteers. Mm-hmm. If you're local, you can get in touch with me, and we'll. Um, get you in here raising a bunch of native plants, you know, once the virus, uh, thing, uh, uh, calms down. So, um, we have, we're raising lots of plants. Um, we're doing a lot of things with that. We have, uh, things in the laboratory that need to be done. Um, if we ever get more help, then we'll need more people to go out and look at bees and catch bees. But right now, mm-hmm. I just can't keep up with what yeah. we've got. So, gotcha. um, we'll see it's a local thing. Yep. yep. All right. Well, with that, I want to thank everyone for joining us today. We hope you you enjoyed listening to, to Sam Drogi and learning about the Native Bee Inventory. Um, thank you, everyone, again. Uh, we really appreciate all the, the feedback and support you guys have given us. Uh, keep on listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. And, and, and thank you, Sam. I, I appreciate you coming on. I, this has been wonderful. So we also want to thank Stephen Marr again for our theme music. Thank you for contributing that. You can follow us on Twitter at Pineland nursery on facebook at pinelands nursery nj instagram at pinelands nursery and our youtube channel which is pinelands nursery you can listen to the native plants healthy planet podcast directly at www.nativeplantshealthyplanet.com you can also listen to the podcast on podbean itunes spotify iHeartRadio, google play stitcher tune in youtube or you can just ask alexa to play the native plants healthy planet podcast Make sure you're following, liking, comment, and review. You don't need to review. You did that earlier when you paused. Yeah, yes, when you paused, yes. us to do that. But uh, thanks again for joining us. I'm Tom, and I am Fran. Thanks again, everyone. Make sure you check out the website so you can follow the great links to all the things we talked about today. We will see you next time, and until then, keep it native. Thank you for listening to the Native Plants Healthy Planet podcast presented by Pinelands Nursery. Remember to like, share, follow, and comment.